Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Parson and Michael Baranowski. Hello and welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Today I'm very pleased to be talking with Alex Jones, author of Losing the News, The Future of the News That Feeds Democracy. Mr. Jones is director of Harvard Shornstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. He covered the press for the New York Times from 1983 to 1992 and was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1987. He has been a host of National Public Radio's On the Media and host and executive editor of PBS's Media Matters. Alex Jones, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Glad to be with you. Uh, the title of your book, Losing the News, uh, clearly suggests that the news is in some way endangered. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the concerns that led you to write this book? The thing that made me want to write this book was that people in journalism are well aware of, of the toll that uh, that the shift in digital technology has had on the economics of journalism, especially newspapers. But newspapers were the vehicle for most of the hard news reporting that was done in this country. The, the thing is, a lot of people are concerned about, about news, but they don't really know what they should be concerned about. They're, you know, they're sort of obsessed with media bias or one thing and another like that. I wrote the book for people who are concerned about news, but who don't really understand the way the news business works, the way the news profession works, the values and norms of, of the people who actually do it. I didn't write it mostly for people who do it. I wrote it for people who are concerned and who uh, I hoped would understand better if they read this book, what is really going on and what's important about what's going on. One of the concepts that you mentioned in the book is something called iron core reporting. I'm wondering if you can explain what that is and why you feel that it's increasingly endangered. Well, I was trying to find an image that would sort of graphically sort of capture what I was really concerned about. And what I found was uh, the image of a of a large and uh, ugly, rather ugly and pitted uh, iron sphere, like a cannonball, a big one, that represented all of the, what I would call, iron core news, the news of of serious things, professionally reported, fact-based, vetted, the real journalism. And I'm not talking about sports coverage or editorials or columns or bridge columns or whatever. I was just talking about that that core of news, fact-based news, that is the basis for which we then basically create our national set of opinions around. I thought of it as this kind of this kind of unwieldy and sometimes uh, ugly but heavy and weighty sphere that, in fact, is getting lighter, is being sort of rusted out from within. So that iron core, as I called it, uh, is what is in jeopardy. And that iron core is the most important public service mission of journalism, in my opinion, anyway. It is the sort of set of facts that we then, as individuals and as a society, shape our, you know, our opinions, our political beliefs, our notions of what is right and wrong and where we go from here around. That 
core of news, though, is the essential. It's like the earth surrounded by atmosphere. The iron core is the earth. The atmosphere is all the conversations that we have in uh, shaping our views nationally, our national conversation. Without that iron core, the atmosphere is just hot air and drifts off into whatever. Uh, I think that the thing that is in jeopardy, that it's important, is that this iron core is, uh, is, is being diminished ever increasingly, in my opinion. A lot of people seem to be concerned about what they see as the decline of that sort of iron core, serious, in-depth journalism. And I think for many people, the base of this concern seems to be a fear that the general public is going to be less well-informed, and then as a result, they're going to be making poor political decisions. Uh, But in the book, it seems to me you suggest that this is only really one way to look at it, when you contrast the views of two uh, really hugely important 20th century intellectuals, and that's uh, Thomas Dewey and Walter Lippmann. And I was wondering if you could explain how the views of uh, their views of the public differed and how this might relate to the news industry. Well, you know, the thing is that, that people, of course, have different views. This was just my way of looking at how, how this all works. Dewey and Lippmann as you say, did have different views. And they were, you know, ones that that all at the same time uh, framed the importance of news, but they looked at how that frame should be viewed in different kinds of ways. The one that began to triumph in the 20th century anyway was Walter Lippmann's. His view was that there should be uh, an objective kind of news, but he was very skeptical about the idea of objectivity. He was a man who, in some respects, was not uh, what I would call a Democrat. He was someone who believed that there should be a governing elite and that this governing elite were the ones who really needed to be informed. And quality journalism was for that purpose. I think that that, you know, that idea had sway for a while, but that's really not the way most people in a democratic society like ours view it. But the reality is that all of us have a certain amount of time and attention that we're willing to spend on informing ourselves. And for the most part, we are easily enticed into being distracted or being drawn to other more entertaining things than reading, you know, a long piece about the, uh, you know, the local school board budget. And I think that, that Lippmann was trying to, to make the point that the, the power of this kind of journalism is in the hands of people who actually take the trouble to inform themselves. And they, in turn, are much more influential than a lot of other people who simply have opinions but don't bother to inform themselves. We're living in a world now in which the, the idea of informing yourself is something that is in uh, increasingly short supply. Young people, I believe, think of themselves as people who uh, the news will find if it is important enough, important enough to them. They'll find it through Facebook. They'll find it through their friends. But they're not going to take the time and trouble uh, and effort to inform themselves. And I think that the, you know, that's life and that's the way human beings are. Newspapers, you know, didn't start out as just uh, vehicles for serious iron core news. They were a smorgasbord of things. And they included comics and the sports section and society news and crime and so forth. But the the thing that that is separating that world from now 
is that there is so much of the of the other of the entertainment of the part of the news that is a genuine distraction that it is dwarfed the uh, the, the the iron news and the iron core news is is something that uh, doesn't have a natural financial economic constituency of support unlike say sports news or entertainment news so it's a lot of kinds of uh, of human uh, of human psychology involved along with the economics of a, an economic model for newspapers that has been blown to smithereens. I know one of the things that you brought up there was that idea of objectivity in journalism. And there's a great line you have in the book about that, uh, where you say objectivity was a commercial necessity that was turned into a virtue by its advocates. And I was wondering what you meant by that. Maybe if you could explain that to the listeners. Sure. Objectivity, you know, you know, People in journalism history and journalism uh, theory differ about what they think the origin of, uh, of, of objectivity was. I think it was a, a couple of things. The, the cynics say it was just a vehicle for people who bought newspapers uh, to be able to sell pots and pans to Republicans and Democrats. And I think there's some truth to that. The news organizations of the 19th century and the late 19th century were focused on party politics and supported by unions and special interests, and they were devoted to those audiences. When newspapering, because of various technologies of the 19th century, like high-speed presses and so forth, uh, began to be a, make, a way to make serious money, especially in cities, then the people who owned the newspapers wanted to maximize their circulation, and they did that by trying to create newspapers that would appeal to people of all persuasions, politically and so forth. So objectivity, in one sense, was born of wanting to have a product that would appeal to everyone, just like a, you know, a, a pot for making soup appeals to Democrats and Republicans alike. However, that wasn't all of it. What was also going on is that there was a, a movement among journalists to professionalize journalism and to do something that would make journalism something that was not just a, uh, you know, a, a, a ragtag profession, the ink-stained wretch uh, sort of image of hacks was something that was pervasive. And a lot of journalists who took themselves and their work seriously in the latter part of the 19th century, early 20th century, wanted journalism to stand for something. And what they wanted was it for it to stand for a, you know, a practical truth. Uh, it goes by many names. Objectivity is one of the ways that they've conventionally been able to uh, sort of capture the spirit. And the spirit of objectivity is the important thing. It is basically don't cook the books. Just because you are one way or the other politically, you have an obligation as a journalist to tell it as straight as you possibly can. Just like if you go to a doctor, you don't want a doctor who's a surgeon uh, to look at you and see surgery no matter what your problem is. Or someone who is a financial advisor to sort of sell you things because he has a particular interest in a mutual fund. You are asking for uh, serious professional judgment, but you're asking for that judgment to be based on fact and, and best practices. That is, I think, the best part of objectivity, and these things came together. Economically, it made sense, and professionally, it made sense. 
And and so would you say that modern political media then is less objective than it used to be? And if so, would there be these economic and technological developments that have maybe pushed it in the direction of being less objective? I think that the, the culture that we're in is uh, one that is increasingly uh, disdainful of the idea of objectivity, even though I, I think a lot of the people who say that don't really reflect on what they're really talking about. I mean, I think that there are some who uh, disparage objectivity, who say, you know, it's not possible, uh, you know, and it, you, your bias creeps in and blah, blah, blah. And of course, that's all true. I'm not trying to make this some sort of kind of abstract truth. But at the same time, People, I think, generally want to go to a news organization that doesn't sort of distort and doesn't sort of selectively report. I think that all of the mainstream news organizations like to think that they are objective. I worked at the New York Times for almost a decade, and that's certainly the way, uh, you know, reporting at the New York Times was perceived. Now, the way people view the world now, however, in terms of news media, is through a prism that assumes bias. Uh, if you're a conservative, you look at Fox News and think you're getting the truth there. And if you're not, you know, I'm a, I'm a New York Times guy, and I believe the New York Times tries to tell it straight. If you say that to a conservative Republican, they will just kind of, you know, look at you like you're nuts. But so be it. I think that's the way these things go. But my book is that that it is important to have the objectivity standard so that you have some basis for uh, for judging the journalist. If you have no objectivity standard, if really the issue is, you know, tell me what you want, tell me what you think is true, uh, tell me what you believe in a kind of uh, abstract way is true, and then make the facts suit that truth, that's not what I want from journalism, and I don't think many people really do. A prime example of it is this most recent flap with the Bowling Stone report about assault at the University of Virginia. The reporter basically went out looking for something that would uh, would frame a, an argument about policy using the vehicle of journalism. And she got herself in terrible trouble because she didn't do the sort of fundamentals of objective journalism. Uh, talking to all the parties. You don't sort of accuse someone without asking them you know, to their face what went on and following up with uh, checking with sources. She was just looking for something that would help tell the story, the political story about a serious problem. But most people look at something like that and think, oh, my God, is that what journalism is? Well, I say it shouldn't be, but sometimes it is. But it's when it is that way, it's considered to be bad journalism. That's the way I look at it. So, I think that the reality of people who say they don't care about, you know, objective journalism, not all, but, but most, is that they actually do want it. They just don't know what to call it. And they don't want and they don't believe in some perfect news organization that is always right or some journalistic kind of uh, absolute truth. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a good faith, serious, professional effort to find out what the truth is, and to the best of your ability within that frame, tell it, no matter what, you're, what ox you're goring, including your own. Do you think that part of the problem, or at least a perceptional 
problem might be that you know people can take a look at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, their straight news reporting, and, and maybe not take away that it's very biased. But when you look at the op-ed pages and the editorials, now those seem to have a pretty clear point of view. And I think the assumption that many people make is that there's more than a little bit of bleed over between the editorial page and the news page. Now, as someone who's worked at the Times, maybe you're in a position where you could comment on whether or not that's the fact. Well, as far as I was concerned, and I was there for a long time, and I did a lot of stories, um, I can tell you that, one, I was never told how to, you know, to slant a story or to cook a story or to frame a story in a way that I thought was, uh, you know, distorting it. And two, I never had any conversations with the editorial board people. The only thing that the editorial board did was to use the reporting in the New York Times to bolster its arguments. But, but the point is, there was no line that I felt like I had to follow as a reporter and writer at the New York Times that was set on the editorial page. Half the time, I never even read the editorial, so I didn't even know what they were saying. But that said, you'll have a hard time persuading people who don't believe that, that that's the case. They think that because the New York Times thought this, then the reporters on the uh, news side were, you know, slavishly following that line. I think if you look at the reporting in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, in both places, you'll find that it doesn't necessarily hew to any party line. I think the the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal is probably the most important conservative like, you know, vehicle for setting conservative policy in the country. But the news sections of the Wall Street Journal, and this is true under Rupert Murdoch for the most part, as well as it was under the Bancroft family, is, you know, there's a lot of excellent reporting there. And it's fact-based reporting. It's not politically slanted reporting, I'm concerned. But, you know, you have to take my... My opinion is one uh, that, um, you know, I feel like I know what I'm talking about, but that's not necessarily persuasive. What do you think about the argument that a lot of people uh, on the right make that uh, that reporting is is biased in the mainstream media because most of the reporters seem to be very strongly biased toward uh, toward the Democratic Party and their voting and that sort of thing? Well, is I think it- that if you ask Bill Clinton, or Barack Obama, whether they have gotten, you know, uh, kid glove treatment in the national media, I think they would laugh you out of the room. Uh, They feel like they've gotten clobbered. But that's the role of the media, to clobber the president. And they do it whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. Bill Clinton was absolutely furious at the media. As you, I mean, the Clintons, they hate the media because the media has been so hard on them. Hillary Clinton doesn't like the media. Because they're very critical. The, the bias that journalists have is for a good story, for controversy, for something that's going to get attention and get their, their name in print. It's not a political bias. If, it, if it's anything, it's a sensational bias because they're looking for stories that may, may sort of cobble up conflict when there really isn't any. And why a lot of this journalism that we get is uh, sort of hyperactive, uh, hyperbolic because they're looking for something that's going to sort of excite. That is the prejudice. It's not a matter of politics. It's a matter of, you know, emotion and trying to uh, get people's attention. 
in the book, you took a really interesting look at how technology, starting actually way back with the telegraph, has affected the news we get, which kind of reminds me of the work of uh, Neil Postman, who wrote a great book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And Ourselves to Death, that's one of the great ones, you're right. Absolutely. And before him, even Marshall McLuhan. And it seems to me that we have a tendency to assume that anything that can get us the news faster is an advance, is, is a good thing. But it seems to me that you, along with Postman and McLuhan and a number of other media scholars, don't seem to entirely buy that. And so I'm wondering, how can faster news delivery be a disadvantage in any way? Well, it is a disadvantage because, I mean, the, the culture of digital technology, the web, has really uh, you know, had a profound effect on journalism and journalism values. Uh, the journalism value that was there 15 years ago or 20 years ago was accuracy over speed. And to a certain degree, that was just a matter of the luxury of not having to uh, be expected to file information immediately. You had to, you were on a deadline, but the New York Times came out in the morning and you picked it up on your doorstep and it stopped the world for a moment, but it was all really uh, the world as of the New York Times staff and editors could frame it for you as of, you know, roughly 11 o'clock the night before, which is the final deadline. I think that the, 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 the virtue of that was that you got, you know, probably more accurate reporting and you got, again, more sort of nuanced and balanced reporting, fair reporting. I think the values of the web of speed, especially, and also of a kind of edge, a kind of voice, have uh, overtaken those things in many respects. And I think if you're a reporter now, you're like someone who's a, you know, like a, like an octopus. You're trying to do 17 different things at once. You're, you're filing, you're twittering, you're tweeting, you're so, you know, you're following the news on Twitter, you're filing to the website, you're filing to the paper, you're doing a podcast. I mean, it's all, it's, and it all is urgent. And when you're urgent, then you don't have time to do much reporting or even to vet uh, and, and find out whether the facts that you ostensibly are reporting are really true. That's, that's a problem. If It's not a problem that people seem to have uh, taken terribly seriously. I think the idea is that, well, it'll get corrected sooner or later. Well, that may be okay unless you're the person that's having uh, some damaging information put out there on the web about you uh, erroneously. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example was the, the when we had the, the marathon bombing here a couple of years ago, uh, you know, Reddit basically created almost a lynch mob in which they identified the wrong guy as the bomber and they had put it up and it was gone into, you know, the, 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 the world of, of, of the web. And it was very damaging to the guy that they misidentified. That's something that, that happens now. The other thing that's happened is that everything because of the the sort of the fragmentation of the market and the way the vast amount of information that's available online, the competition for attention, means that everything has to be entertaining. And I think that that is probably just as pernicious as the idea of uh, being first and fast, uh, overwhelming every other value, because it's making it's making news into something that is so much a, an entertainment commodity and competing with those, uh, you know, entertainment vehicles that are really, truly and almost uh, uh, irresistibly uh, entertaining. 
the you know the BuzzFeed sort of phenomenon is not something that's been lost on newspapers. They they look at something like you know cat pictures and they want to get into that business because people uh, people like it, and that get if they get people's attention, they feel like they have shored up their economic model, but at the expense of things that are more serious, take more time, uh, take the attention and work of uh, reporters, and are expensive. When I was growing up in Cleveland, there were two papers, the Plain Dealer in the morning and then the Cleveland Press in the afternoon. And in Cincinnati, where I now live, there also used to be two papers. We had the Inquirer and the Post. And now both Cleveland and Cincinnati are just one newspaper towns. And really, the newspapers that are still remaining are, are shadows of their former selves. And so what do you think happened? Oh, I know what happened. I mean, the, the thing is that there was a time when every newspaper or every town had multiple newspapers. I'm from a little town in Tennessee, and when my family's been in the newspaper business for 100 years, there were 5,000 people in the town in three weekly newspapers. I mean, wow. it was that, that was the way world, the world was. That basically gave way to a world in which there were, for most towns, two newspapers, one morning and one afternoon. Uh, but the morning was usually the stronger economically. And over time, back in, 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 by into the 80s, uh, that began to, the economics of it uh, began to uh, make it only sensible for one newspaper to be in a market because only one could be adequately uh, supported economically. And that one made a lot of money. But the other one basically went out of business. And I know something especially about what happened to what, what happened to the Cleveland press, because it was a really ugly story. I covered it for the New York Times. I was a reporter, but my beat at the Times was the media. And I went to Cleveland to report on how, over a weekend, the Cleveland press had been sold to the plain dealer. And the plain dealer had basically, over the weekend, gone to the press, cut the press, literally cut the press in pieces, and hauled it out of town so that no one would be able to buy it. No one else would be able to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'll buy the Cleveland Press and keep it going. Well, the Cleveland Plain Dealer didn't want that. And so it not only ceased publication, it ceased to exist in a, literally, physically. That was the kind of thing that happened. And the Cleveland you know, Plain Dealer uh, thrived and made a fortune. I guess they still are to a degree, and they're probably still thriving. But it was a competitive market, but it was competitive in the sense that that there couldn't be more than one profitable, flourishing newspaper. Now, that one flourishing newspaper is doing a lot worse than it used to be doing, and uh, profitability is much less than it was, but they're still, most places, making an operating profit. The ones that are in trouble are ones that have a big debt. And they got that big debt mostly by buying at, at you know, inflated, you know, pre-digital prices uh, of the newspapers because it was for a period there for, you know, period of years being in the newspaper business was practically like being licensed to print money. Now, some people have argued that the decline of local political media really isn't that big of a deal, that, in fact, it might be an advantage in that now people can get their news from really cream of the crop reporters at places like the New York Times, as opposed to learning about the world from their local newspaper. Do you think this is a reasonable argument? Uh, Well, look, I think that the fact that, say, the Plain Dealer had some foreign reporting and some Washington reporting 
was a good thing because frankly it was it was national and international reporting but i have no doubt that it was skewed toward the people who were readers of the cleveland plain dealer it was skewed toward cleveland it was skewed toward ohio it was skewed toward the midwest and the the you know the the people in the stories that the cleveland plain dealer covered in washington were the delegation from ohio and the delegation from cleveland who were there i think the problem now is that when you get rid of those those that strength that reporting muscle then the thing that has really gotten clobbered has been political reporting on a state and national level that is focused on the local group. I don't know where people in Cincinnati get their news about what's going on with Cincinnati's you know, representatives and the senators from Ohio, uh, but my guess is they get most of it still from the local media. But if you're not from Cleveland, if you're from a smaller town or smaller area, then probably you don't get anything. You don't get anything maybe but the Associated Press report about what goes on at the state capitol. It's that kind of reporting that's been really hurt bad. The, the, the local reporting tends to be something that newspapers pay a lot of attention to. But the state reporting and the regional reporting and the locally focused national reporting, that's been hurt. So what sort of things can – do you think local media, especially newspapers, which seem to be having the hardest time – what can they do to survive in this new environment? Well, they're doing everything they can think of, I can tell you. They're going into ancillary businesses. They're focusing very hard on uh, on their digital uh, products and trying to figure ways to make money out of, uh, out of the work they do, but in a digital format, which is hard to do because, the, the, you know, the world is moving digital, but those digital uh, dollars or, you know, digital – you know, print print dollars equal digital dimes or maybe digital pennies. I mean, it really is is something that does not get replaced one to one by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that the 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 thing they can do is to work very hard to demonstrate to their audiences that they are giving them something that they need and want. I mean, making your newspaper, you can't get by with newspapers now that are not interesting and smart and offering information that people can't really get anywhere else. The good advantage that local newspapers have is that nobody else really is in a position to do that kind of reporting. At least that's that's the way it is most places. Public radio and television aren't. Uh, local television, God knows, isn't. I mean, local television does what it does. It does wrecks. It does, you know, features, it does sports, it does, you know, weather. But when it comes to political reporting and serious reporting, uh, you know, local television wants nothing to do with that because it's something that, that, that makes people mad. And they certainly don't want to make people mad. They're there to get as many people, you know, watching and they watch it because it doesn't, it, you know, the, the sports coverage is, you know, is, is, cheering on the home team and the weather is smiling and people trying to make lame jokes and so forth and so on. I mean, it, it's, it's something that's always struck me as very ironic when people tell me that they get most of their news from television. Well, most television news is derivative. I mean, I'm talking about iron core news here. I'm not talking about weather. I'm talking about the kind of news that I think is important is done virtually nil by television. It is done to a degree by 
you know, by some, I mean, their local television stations still do it, but not remotely compared to what newspapers do. And I think that most of what you see on television uh, in terms of this kind of news comes from the local newspaper. It's basically just stolen. One thing that I've noticed in, in recent years is the rise of what some people call citizen journalism, whether it be blogging or live tweeting or uh, taking video of events on their phones, which has been you know, a major factor in some you know, recent police misconduct cases. Do you think this is the future of the news, at least at the local level? And if so, is it a good thing? Well, I, don't, I think it's always been uh, it's always been there. But people now call citizen journalists are really what we used to call sources. I mean, I think that the, the, the fact that everybody has a cell phone, of course, is, is a game changer in every respect. Because if you have a situation like the one in North Charleston, South Carolina, when that policeman was shown executing, that is something that was, you know, an eyewitness. And not only an eyewitness, but an eyewitness with a camera. That's certainly a changer. But it was not the video itself it was the video being you know aired on local the local television channels and on local um, you know outlets that made it into journalism and it had to be vetted and it had to be checked you had to make sure that it was not something that somebody staged or something like that i think that being a citizen with a camera or a citizen who is you know is 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 out to sort of participate in the journalistic you know uh, experience uh, does not mean that that you need to trust or should trust everything that comes up. That's what I mean about professional journalism. I think citizen journalism feeds into and, and supports professional journalism. But if you are going to be dependent on citizen journalism for, say, coverage of the local school board, uh, well, you may get somebody good or you may get somebody who's mad about something and who purports to you know, report about what happened, but is giving you a completely skewed version. If you don't have an institutional basis for holding the reporting to account, uh, it's not something that I would put a lot of trust in. Now, there are going to be people maybe who will create that kind of trust simply over time by doing that job. The other problem with citizen journalism, quite frankly, is that nobody pays them. So if they don't feel like doing it, they're not going to do it. I mean, they're not going to go out and, and do the job if they're not, uh, if they're not hired and paid uh, and held to account, edited, uh, taught how to be professional. So I'm not, you know, I welcome this sort of world of people with cameras, but I don't think that that's going to be a substitute for journalism in any stretch of the imagination. So I'm curious, what's your news routine and what would you recommend to listeners who like to be reasonably well-informed about politics without spending an inordinate amount of time doing that? I would, I would recommend, first of all, that they subscribe to their local newspaper. Uh, I mean, not only for the fact that that is probably the main source they're going to have of, of the news that matters most to them, but also because they're supporting, therefore, thereby a real institution that if that institution should go away, I think would be a, a great blow. And I think this is true of, of, of most, most communities. My personal one is that I have the New York Times and the Boston Globe in paper form on my doorstep every morning. And I like to read the Times and, and the Globe over a cup of coffee. 
during the uh, course of the day, I will go to both websites of the Globe and the Times and others, you know, periodically throughout the day to see what's going on. I will also check other, you know, websites uh, that are, you know, focused on politics. And I try to get, you know, I'm interested in politics in a kind of a broad gauged way. So I go for, you know, the Huffington Post and the Daily Beast, but I also go for things like Red State which is, you know, a, uh, you know, a, you know, tooth and claw conservative uh, website. I, I feel like you can get online a whole, you know, plethora of, of opinion. And now increasingly places like, you know, BuzzFeed and uh, Vice.com and so forth are doing some journalism. I mean, and it's very sort of, you never know quite what's out there, but there you are. I think a lot of other people, I'm not someone who gets news from Facebook particularly, but I know an awful lot of people who do. And that probably is the wave of the future. I think that uh, news organizations like the New York Times and others are putting their, their reports on Facebook, and that's how people find the news. I tend to go to the homepage uh, to see what the editors think is the most important thing that is happening right now. Because that hierarchy of importance is something that matters to me more than the the subject itself. I'm not necessarily, if I'm interested in a particular topic, I can search for that. But what I'm really interested in is what the editors think is the most important thing for me to know. And that is something that you learn more from a homepage than you do from, you know, something coming in from the side, an article that someone sends you or that you see reference somewhere. Now, I know we're just about out of time, but I was wondering, before we wrap things up, if you could maybe tell us about what you've uh, been working on uh, recently. Well, I've gotten fascinated with, with what happened after Gutenberg's uh, intervention, in, invention in 1450 of uh, printing technology. He didn't invent the printing press, but he certainly did invent things that made mass communication possible. And that transformed the world. And it transformed the world not just in the ways people usually think, you know, um, the Enlightenment and democracy and so forth. No, 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 no. Uh, immediately after Gutenberg changed the world by introducing mass communication, the world went absolutely berserk in terms of some of the worst wars, uh, upheaval, total changes in politics, institutions, values. Uh, that is the only sort of um, template we have for what's happening now, because we are now going through our own Gutenberg moment that began in the early 1990s when the World Wide Web was created. Not the Internet, but the World Wide Web, which let everybody effectively have their own printing press. And when that happened, everything changed, the game changed, and we are now living through that Gutenberg period of transformation. We're living through it and watching it and looking at it and trying to understand it. But it's something that is going to change everything. And trying to look at the world we're in now through the prism of what happened after Gutenberg is something that I found quite fascinating. So then you still think we're in early days, essentially? Early, and Oh, yeah. Early days. I mean, if you look, if you look at the way that the world changed um, in the 20th century, uh, or look after Gutenberg. I mean, the thing is, it's been over 500 years since Gutenberg. When I was a kid working in my family's you know, newspaper in Greenville, Tennessee, uh, my first job was taking these, the lead slugs, the lines of type that we used to make the paper every day and remelting them and putting them back into pig iron bars and putting them back so they could be used again. That alloy was invented by Gutenberg. 
I mean, we were still using Gutenberg technology to make newspapers in the 1950s and 60s. So, I mean, that was something that had a profound effect and technology did not change. I mean, there were evolutions of it, but the transformational sense of what happened didn't happen until the 1990s with the World Wide Web. Because until then, no matter how the technology changed, it was still in the hands of only a few people. I mean, television was in the networks, and newspapers were owned by people and so forth. With the World Wide Web, those all bets were off. Everybody's got, you know, a printing press. So, you know, welcome to the world that we're living in now. Well, Alex Jones, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's been great talking with you. You're my, well, I'm, again, through the wonders of technology, digital technology, we can do this. So, you know, this is one of the, you know, there's so much wonderful stuff out there because of this technology. Uh, but it's going to, uh, it, it's like trying to look at something and understand it while you're right in the middle of it. Could be like a hurricane. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. You can follow us throughout the week on Twitter. Our handle is politicsguys. We'll be back next week. We hope you'll join us.